Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Today's guest is composer Nathaniel Stuckey, first commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony when he was 17 years old. His best-known work might be The Composer is Dead, a collaboration with the children's book author known as Lemony Snicket, which has become one of the most widely performed classical works of this century. He has scored for the theater, collaborated with his daughter, and even had a residency at San Francisco's City Dump, where he wrote the music and created the instruments from discarded trash for the work that he titled Junkestra. He joined me for an in-person conversation. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Ted. You grew up in San Francisco studying violin and composition. How did you decide on the classical world uh, as the outlet for your musical aptitudes and interests? Well, um, I guess in those days, there weren't that many opportunities to take uh, synthesizer lessons. So I took violin lessons. Um, at that point, uh, the more I got into it, uh, the more exciting classical music was to me uh, as a performer, but it wasn't necessarily that I just listened to classical music. So I was more involved, more deeply involved in the classical world, but not only involved in that sort of music as a listener. Let's talk about The Composer is Dead. Uh, it's been described as a sinister guide to the orchestra, a musical murder mystery in which a detective tries to solve the case of a recently deceased composer by interrogating the various instruments in the orchestra. Uh, Lemony Snicket, or Daniel Handler, uh, wrote the narration. Uh, how did that come about? That's an uh, unusual collaboration. Well, it, it was a sort of a chance happening. Uh, Daniel had just moved home to San Francisco, and I had just moved home to San Francisco. We ran into each other on a street corner, and at the time, I was collaborating with the San Francisco Symphony on a different project, and we just got to talking. Um, the first thing that he did with the symphony was um, a Peter and the Wolf version, and that led to our thinking about doing something along those lines, but you know, for the new century, basically. Every uh, classical musician loves and complains about uh, Britain's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra and uh, Peter and the Wolf, because those seem to be the only two works written for kids that are really part of the classical repertory. Well, they're the only ones that have really great music. Um, there are a lot of others that, that musicians groan at having to play, but those are really, really great pieces of music in their own right. With, without the narration, they're just wonderful. How did you go about working with uh, Daniel? Did you say, uh, you write some words and then I'll write music around it, or vice versa? Well, it's 10 years ago now, so it's starting to fade exactly how we went about it. But basically, we spent a lot of time hanging out together, um, cooking and eating and drinking coffee and beer, um, like all good collaborations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he through story ideas at me and then I would get back to him and say you know can we do this because I'd really like to do this musically and he'd say okay give me a 
give me a couple days, and he would send back uh, a variation or something like that. And so it really was a, uh, a collaboration from the very beginning and all the way through, and that there was a lot of really fruitful and fun back and forth the whole time. When you're writing works that aren't formal collaborations, like a work for string quartet or orchestra, is there any feedback from those ensembles? Or do you work by yourself, create, and then give it to them as a finished piece? It's usually a more or less finished piece. I, in some ways, would like to have more feedback than I'm often able to get. One reason for that is that in the, in the classical music world, things happen very quickly. For instance, the symphony orchestra prepares a completely new program every week. So when you have a piece go into rehearsal on a Tuesday, it's very likely going to be premiering on the Thursday. So that doesn't give a lot of wiggle room uh, and it doesn't give a lot of opportunities for, for real collaboration. So what I try to do to offset that is to get to know the ensemble or the person I'm working with as much as possible beforehand and get as much information as I can from them about the kind of thing that they would really be excited to play, their, their style, what they might be into on the side. So, so it can feel for me more like a collaboration, even though we often don't have that much time to be face to face. You've got a new work that was commissioned by the Chrono String Quartet, your third string quartet. Was that a hands-off commission, or was that something where there was some regular give and take in its creation? There was give and take in terms of the genesis of the project. Uh, Kronos Quartet is in the neighborhood, and that for me is the ideal situation. I like to work with groups in San Francisco because I like to see people face to face. I like uh, what comes out of informal meetings and conversations about different things. Um, in the case of my third quartet, uh, David Harrington, who leads the Kronos Quartet, and I had talked about uh, collaboration for years, and we started having coffee, and we started talking about all kinds of things, and the thing that really grabbed our, our imagination was uh, Nicholson Baker, the author. He had read Human Smoke, and I had just read The Mezzanine, and we were both really, really excited about Nicholson Baker. And so that was the direction that the quartet ended up taking. It's inspired by The Mezzanine. It's called The Mezzanine. And so even though David and I didn't have a lot of concrete back and forth as far as, how about I do this in Measure 46, there was a lot of of collaborative spirit between us as the as the project moved forward, and also uh, a sort of collaboration with Nicholson Baker because as soon as I started writing a piece based on his work, I got in touch with him, and we ended up corresponding and meeting, and and so all of these different uh, angles are really what helped me get out of bed in the morning because I know that there's someone else. Who, who gives a shit. I don't know if I can say that in podcasting. Um, but anyway, who cares? <laughs> that work is a novella that's the most OCD work ever written, probably. 
did you feel you had to get into an OCD zone to do it justice in your writing? For me, it's funny. It's it was more of a Zen zone. Um, I can see how you could you could see the OCD angle, um, but to me, it became about looking very closely at something, and that is something that that chamber music in particular does very well because while orchestra music tends to be sort of broad, spro sto <laughs> broad strokes and bombast, I was trying to say all those together in one word, um, chamber music is very contemplative and close looking and what excited me about the mezzanine was the amount of attention paid to things that people normally ignore like the viola. <laughs> what, a, what should I know about the viola? Uh, it's just a, like a common uh, musician's joke. It's, it's, a, it's a line and the composer is dead. Everyone forgets about us, the violas said bitterly. Um, basically, the viola is often considered the instrument um, that sort of lurks in the shadows because, you know, you got the, the first violins out front and you got the cellos kind of blocking sight lines to the violas. And meanwhile, of course, the violas are doing a very important job. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the great thing about the mezzanine is that it looks closely at things that I think are often overlooked. One of the other texts that you composed to, for lack of a better phrase, is um, some words written by Frederica von Stade, which she basically kicked off her 2009 farewell tour with a piece you wrote for her called Into the Bright Lights. What does that mean to set someone's personal writings to music? Well, that was a very exciting and different project from the Mezzanine Project in that it really was a collaboration much like The Composer is Dead. Frederica and I uh, met, we really liked each other's work, and we wanted to do something together. And that also was fueled, as, as many of these projects are, by being local artists, by the fact that we could meet at a tea room and talk about the sorts of things that she wanted to share and uh, again that was one of these situations where the piece was very much driven by the personality of my collaborator kind of trying to get into her head and trying to make music that would support what she wanted to say. Brian Eno had a concept of senius that it's not about a sole genius but it's very much about the group of people that together things emerge from. Uh, rumor has it, as you've hinted at, that you drink kind of uh, lightly or heavily with Daniel Handler, Andy Greer, Robert Mailer Anderson, uh, others here in the Bay Area world. Um, beyond those folks in the writing world, what are the folks and what are their other media that you spend time with where it feels like it informs your own writing? Well, honestly, a lot of the people that I drink heavily with and who inform what I do aren't necessarily artists at all. I'm married to a scientist um, and uh, we drink heavily and, <laughs> and talk about things other than, than art, which nonetheless informs my art. Um, I'm, I'm very close to Manuel Felciano, who is a singer best known for Sweeney Todd, uh, the, the uh, John Doyle revival of a couple years back. 
Uh, he and I spend a lot of time talking about art and music, but also everything else under the sun. Um, so it isn't necessarily that I gravitate towards artists uh, to inspire me, but, but I do like to be with people. Uh, what I do is pretty lonely, and it's really important to me to be able to, to get out, to just go to the corner cafe where I'm a regular and just say hello to someone and have them say hello back. Uh, because otherwise the days get very, very long, and I find that by the end of them, I'm a little bit crazy. <laughs> How long does a composition take, one that you're writing uh, by yourself? Well, I basically plan to put out one major work per year, and there are usually a couple of smaller things that are that are interspersed. For instance, I'm working on a major project for the San Francisco Symphony now, and a, a smaller project for Spur, which is a design group here in San Francisco. Um, I tend to like to have a couple of things rolling at once. Uh, I'm just finishing up a recording with uh, a kind of pop crossover group called Magic Magic Orchestra, and I guess on the whole, I put out one large new thing per year, but there are also lots of little things that I use to kind of balance myself. Um, and also I find that they allow me to, to write more because I find that while I only have about three hours in me on whatever big project I'm working on, I might be able... Uh, after lunch or a trip to the cafe to sit down and spend a little time working on a libretto for an opera that's three years down the road or something like that that isn't necessarily the main event but will eventually become the main event or has some sort of side sideshow value for me. One of the more unusual works you worked on as part of a residency, although I don't know how much time you spent there, was with uh, the San Francisco City Dump. The operator there is Recology. And for close to 25 years, I think, they've had an artist-in-residence program. Uh, and you wrote what you call Junkestra, a classical composition for 30 instruments made out of trash. Uh, was it a residence where you went and spent time at the dump every day, or was that a place where you just went, created some instruments, and had some fun with it? I was actually at the dump every day. There are, of course, plenty of residencies where people aren't really in residence, but I was actually there every single day. Um, it was a really great experience. The, the program, as you said, has been going on for 25 years or more, and it's mostly for sculptors and other visual artists. But I basically needed to make money, <laughs> and I saw that they had this available, so I decided, well, I can, I can make something out of junk, and I went every day and collected all kinds of garbage and gradually put it together into this piece, which was a lot of fun to make and surprised me in that it was, in that the end result was much more satisfying musically than I had originally thought it might be. I thought it might just be a sideshow, as I said, but it ended up being one of the pieces I care most about. What were some of the instruments made from? They are made from uh, serving trays and bits of old 
pipe and shopping carts and dresser drawers, pretty much anything you could imagine finding flung, uh, flung out of the back of a truck. And the way I treated them was a little bit like making a bouquet from wildflowers in that I decided that I wasn't going to cut pipes to be particular notes. I was just going to grab an armful of them and see what sounds they made. So in some ways that piece, I was collaborating with people's garbage <laughs> in that someone else had cut this pipe and or hit it in a particular way so it was bent and there was a bit of concrete in the end and it made this very particular sound and that really, really inspired the composition of the piece to the extent that now uh, if one of the parts is damaged or lost, which actually happened not too long ago, I'm kind of in a tough spot because they're irreplaceable. They're instruments like it's like Stradivarius pipe. I just, I cannot find another pipe with exactly the same dents and exactly the same bit of concrete in the end. So you don't tune the instruments like a steel pan player might tune his, uh, his drum. That's right. Nothing, nothing is tuned. It's all, I mean, it is tuned in that from what I found, I, I created harmonies. So... In fact, it is much more tuned than people expect. When you listen to it, it sounds like a pitched piece of music, because it is. It's just that the pitches were as I found them rather than as I imposed on them. So the score couldn't be played in any other setting in any other way? That's right, and that's a problem, um, because at the moment it can only be played correctly on these instruments. Um, I've had some interest from presenters, including uh, one in England last year, that proposed building an entire new Junkestra and playing the score on that and seeing what happened. And I was actually willing to do it. It ended up falling through for other logistical reasons. I mean, there are all kinds of, of problems that you don't think about when you're dealing with a truck full of garbage, no matter where it is. Um, even you know, for me, like performing this in Chicago means shipping a truckload of garbage to Chicago or say they decide to collect their own garbage in Chicago. Well, they have to collect a truckload of garbage in Chicago. There's just a lot more junk involved than than you would like when, it, you know, from a presenter's perspective, it's kind of a nuisance. But it's a great project in that it's environmentally sensitive and unique. And, and really, really fun to do. Um, yeah. You use a lot of humor in your writing. Uh, even one of the titles, uh, the third movement of Junkestra, uh, where does the Lone Ranger take his garbage? With If anyone doesn't know the joke, the answer is to the dump, to the dump, to the dump, dump, dump. Um, the joke about decomposing, that's obviously uh, inherent to your piece with Lemony Snicket. Um, is there humor elsewhere in classical music? Because in this day and age, it's a challenge for orchestras to attract young audiences. Uh, it's a challenge to feel uh, that the classical world is light and inviting. I don't mean this as criticism, it's more descriptive, but you seem a little bit unusual compared to many of the other composers working today in the contemporary classical realm. Well, that may be true. I, I don't think that we're often accused of having a sense of humor. <laughs> um, classical music does have a very serious side, which is wonderful. 
Um, historically, though, of course, it, it's full of humor and lightness. I mean, if you think of, of Mozart, uh, of course. Uh, and, you know, more recent pieces, I guess more often for children you find humor. Um, I, I wouldn't want to say anything about what my, what my colleagues are making, um, but it's true that to me what's exciting about music is the full spectrum of, of human experience and how I can tap into that through music. And humor is a very big part of that. Um, and so it's something that I don't like to shy away from. I, I mean, I like to feel that I'm free in my creative process and that if I want to do something that's emotionally intense, I allow myself to do that. And if I want to do something that makes me laugh and hopefully someone else, then I want to do that too. When you're writing for kids, is there a sense of doing something differently uh, in the book world? that's almost two different industries, books for kids, books for adults. There's been a bit of a crossover lately as more adults are starting to read what's labeled as new adult or young adult writing. Uh, but you can tell looking at the two, there's a pretty fundamental difference in the style of storytelling and the, the depth and so on. Uh, do you think there's that marketed difference when you are writing a piece explicitly for kids? Honestly, no, for me. Um, I really wrote The Composer is Dead, and I think Daniel would probably agree it was probably more directed towards our generation than towards our kids. Uh, our generation doesn't go to the orchestra either, so uh, most of the jokes, um, you know, about meeting a couple of attractive sailors are not aimed at eight-year-olds. They're aimed at the parents of eight-year-olds. And so for me, no. I mean, I definitely am conscious while I'm writing of who's listening, uh, and I try and put myself in the shoes of that person. Uh, and I can as easily put myself in the shoes of, a, of someone my age listening as I can in the shoes of a younger person, or at least try. I find that if I'm being honest, it isn't really a terribly different message. I'm just trying to reach them. Um, so I guess I would have to say no, and that Possibly, I don't remember where I was reading this. I think it's um, the Yiddish writer, Singer. Um, in the introduction to one of his books, he talks about the fact that maybe it's the hardest thing to do to write for children or the, that writing for children somehow brings out the best in what we do and that it strips away all of the artifice that we allow ourselves when writing for adults. Um, I, that's not a direct quote, of course, I wasn't really like, prepared to, for this question, but, but I think that that's true to a certain extent, that when, when you allow yourself to be honest with, with children, it, it takes away a whole level of, of bull that you might allow yourself when writing for adults who, you know, you might be trying to be more, uh, more fashionable or more something rather than just being direct in your storytelling or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. If you weren't working in music, what would you be doing with your days and with your career? I would be planning new bus lines and subway lines across San Francisco. 
Does that spring <laughs> from a love of geography or a frustration with the current system? It springs from a love of my hometown and a long-standing interest in in public transportation and urban planning that has no particular connection to music, except maybe that that scores and maps have something in common. Um, both involve movement across, you know, space, I guess, time, something. I don't know. I wouldn't really try to draw any close parallels, but I think if I weren't in music, I would probably be in city planning. You said you're doing a work with or for SPUR, which for those who don't know is our local um, uh, urban planning uh, organization, not-for-profit. Uh, what is the nature of the work you're doing with them? Well, we're still in the, in the planning phases of that, though the, um, the plan of that planning phase is for it to feature Junkestra. Um, this is a, an exhibit called Sound in the City. Um, so it kind of connects my two interests, my two great interests, which are music and sound and urban life. Um, I will probably also be creating a new work for that, um, but we're still we're still figuring out the details. Have you talked to the Arts Commission about maybe some permanent installations around the city, like the wave organ out uh, on the bay? I haven't, um, but I am talking to people at Muni about this project because it's kind of a way that I'm drawing these these interests together. Um, it's something that I haven't given a lot of thought to, but but civic art is really important to me. Um, music doesn't fit in quite so easily as as sculpture, um, but it is something I'm interested in. Are you, uh, do you participate or do you watch trolley dances when that uh, runs through town? I have seen that, but it's been years. I think that trolley dances have been going for 20 years or so, and it's probably been 15 years since I've seen it. But yeah, it's a wonderful example. They're still active, but that is a, oh, oh, I was going to say one day, it's a two-day event and not a permanent installation, obviously, with dancers on muni buses every day. It's a, yeah, it's, it's tough to have permanent dancers. So that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> What's next? Is this going to be for the foreseeable future, this kind of work, looking for commissions, writing pieces on your own, or might the pattern of your career change over time? Well, at the moment, uh, I guess I always look at my career as whether I have work for the next two to three years. And at the moment, I do. So I figure my career will last at least two to three years. <laughs> um, and to me, in some ways, that's always been the way I've approached it and that I've never, well, okay, now I think of myself as a composer. I have to recognize that I've earned a living this way for a long time, and so I'm a composer. Um, but when I was younger, I never really thought of becoming one so much as that I liked doing that and that as long as I could keep doing that, I would keep doing that, and then if I had to do something else, well, that was okay too. And I guess to some extent I still feel that way. Um, there are some pieces that I really want to write. Uh, I'm working on a couple of big opera projects right now. Um, opera is something that has attracted me for a long time because I'm very interested in storytelling and character in addition to music and that's something that brings those together. Um, I'm interested in writing some more big orchestra pieces. Um, but in terms of 
what is beyond the three or four or five year mark? I really couldn't say. Uh, maybe I'll be a planning bus lines by then. I don't know. Today's guest has been composer Nathaniel Stuckey. His works include The Composer is Dead, a collaboration with Lemony Snicket, Junkestra, a work for 30 instruments that he made from recycled materials at the San Francisco dump, and works commissioned by Frederica von Stade, the Kronos Quartet, the San Francisco Symphony, and many others. Thanks very much for talking. Thank you. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental99 and used with their kind permission. A production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management, this has been The Work of Art.